God, holy, 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 worthy of all of our praise. Through your will we have been created, and it is of your will that we are here this morning. Everything and everyone is subject to you. We praise your name. Thank you for the book of Revelation, that we can get just a glimpse of your infinite power and get some of the idea of what it might be like to be with you in heaven. Lord, I would like to take a moment now, as much as I can, for myself and North Shore Church and all who are listening to confess our sins. And through your Son, Jesus Christ, as we put our faith in him, he has promised forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the work of your Son, and thank you for allowing us to be called and treated as sons and daughters of the Most High. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you for the life-renewing promises of following you, of being blessed as one of your own. God, I pray this morning for all of North Shore Church. Help us with our own physical and mental needs. Heal our bodies and our minds. Lord, hear our prayers for family and friends that don't yet know you. Help them to seek you. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for Marinette Menominee in the area. We ask for you to work, revive, and renew your church. Help us to serve you well and to be a light, a testimony of your love to all who know us. God, I also ask for your hand to be on Duncan this morning as he brings us your words from Scripture. Empower him to speak only your truth and your message for us today. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to work here this morning. Help us to not be distracted and protect us from spiritual attack as we strive to know you, our God, better. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. This week we continue to peer into the throne room of heaven as the Apostle John reveals that glorious scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. As we said many times, and it bears repeating, in the book of Revelation, what John does on so many issues, on so many fronts, across so many chapters, is he's peeling back the external layers of this seen material world and inviting us to gaze into the deeper, unseen, spiritual world that's constantly active and is controlling what happens in the material realm. As we saw last week, John reveals to us in chapter 4 the enthroned Lord of the universe, God the Father, the creator of everything. His throne, which was the main focus of that heavenly scene, is a symbol that John uses to convey God's supreme authority, ruling over the events of this world. Even as his church sometimes suffers severe persecution, the one who's ruling is not the Roman emperor and other earthly authorities, 
The enthroned God of heaven is over all, overseeing all of it. That means that all the calamities, all the natural disasters, the plagues, the pestilence, and all the other end time judgments that is being poured out in the book of Revelation, those things occur ultimately for only one reason, and that is they appear by order of the throne of God. But John also reveals in some detail the process and the heavenly powers whereby God implements those sovereign judgments on the sin of humanity in chapter 4. We saw those 24 elders on their own thrones and these four supernatural creatures, these perhaps highest ranking of, of all created beings, these angelic creatures who in some way implement, establish, and mediate God's sovereign plans on the earth. When world events unfold, there are always human personalities involved, winning elections, declaring wars, rioting in streets, bringing pandemics, oppressing the church, whatever. But those earthly elements are brought into being only as a result of the angelic beings being supernaturally charged by God to bring those into being. And those beings bring them into being as a result of the order of a sovereign God. Now, this is not to say that God is responsible for evil or that the evil people do not have responsibility for what they do. It's simply to acknowledge the biblical truth from Genesis to Revelation that God is somehow sovereign over all things, including evil, without himself being evil or doing evil. Now, there's mystery obviously involved here, but if God is not in sovereign control over evil, then he is in not sovereign control over a whole lot of what happens on this planet, okay? This enthroned God of Revelation chapter 4 that we saw last week is revealed in his manifold glory. We looked at this last week. He's the thrice holy God, holy, 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 so superlative. He's better. He's more powerful. He's pure. He's more wise than any other human being. He's also revealed in chapter 4 as the creator God who has revealed himself so magnificently in his created order. And in response to his revealed glory, these angelic beings surrounding the throne who are so glorious themselves they can respond in no other way than to give him continuous, intense, and repeated praise and worship. So chapter 4 reveals the glory of God and his sovereign control over all the events of this world. As we move into chapter 5, as we heard read, we move a step closer to seeing how the end times events in Revelation are enacted. Because here John introduces the member of the Godhead who is Lord over all and who will personally implement God's plan through the Holy Spirit and these heavenly creatures. On this earth, the emperors, the governors, the prefects, the rulers, the presidents, the congresses, dictators carry out their political will. But John reveals in chapter 5 that those events in history have been predetermined in eternity past. And they are so specifically and irreducibly decreed by God, it's as if they were written on a scroll by God who sits on the throne. In chapter 5, the enthroned God, God the Father, hands these predetermined, irreversible plans to someone who is uniquely qualified to oversee their implementation on the earth. All of that means, of course, is that the sometimes 
frequently chaotic and scary events that we see playing out every night on the evening news originate in the mind of God. And there is one, one person who is uniquely qualified to oversee them as he works through his angelic servants to bring them into the reality through the rulers of this world at all levels. That's how chapter 4 and 5 relate to one another. Now let's look at chapter 5 as John records it here for us. John continues to speak of this heavenly vision, and he says, again, repeating what Andy read in verse 1, Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. As we move through this chapter, it divides into three sections. Section one is the heavenly scroll is revealed. Second, the judge and the redeemer is revealed. And third, the judge and the redeemer is worshiped. First, let's see the heavenly scroll being revealed as John describes that. This is a very important scroll because it contains all that will transpire in the end time prophecies recorded in the Revelation. Scrolls of this type that are pictured here in this apocalyptic imagery were made of ancient paper and they were bound together in one of several possible ways. And this one is filled with writing within and on the back and is sealed with seven seals. These scrolls normally had writing only on one side. So the point is of this mention of both sides, the point is this scroll is comprehensive. It lacks no important detail of what God is going to bring about. It is jam-packed with his plans for this world. The seals are wax seals. And some of you who watch Jane Austen movies know all about this. There are those seals made of melted globs of wax that are then pressed with a metal seal to place a lasting seal on the paper. The reason for the seal is to keep someone from opening up the section of paper sealed off unless he or she breaks the wax seal and exposes what is written. Therefore, you know if somebody has read this before or not. If it's sealed, it has not been read. If it hasn't been sealed or the seal is broken, it probably has been read, okay? Basically, on this particular scroll, the seals keep the sections of the scroll closed off from one another until the seals, one by one, are broken in succession, if you read the rest of the the book. The seven seals are, if you could use a, a, a modern term, they're like chapter markers that separate each successive series of God's acts of judgment, God's acts of redemption, from one to the next. That's what they do. And before each new series of God's end-time judgments are carried out on earth, the seal in heaven containing those recorded events must first be broken. That's the idea. That's what's being communicated. Only as they are systematically revealed in heaven can the context of this next chapter of the story, history, be carried out on the earth. So the breaking of these particular seals in chapter 5, interestingly, fulfills a prophecy made 600 years earlier back in Daniel chapter 8. 
Like John, if you've read through Daniel, and we're covering that in Sunday school, God reveals to Daniel his own set of of visions filled with these same kind of symbolic or apocalyptic images. They occur in the second half of the book of Daniel. This vision that Daniel received revealed what would happen over the next several hundred years before Jesus was born in that part of the world. That's what those visions covered. And many wondrous and at the same time terrifying things are revealed to Daniel And in chapter 8, it's very clear he's absolutely overwhelmed by it all. He can't take any more. So after the vision is revealed, there are even more events that God could reveal to Daniel, but the angel Gabriel steps in and tells Daniel in verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Okay, you get it? Get it? Though there are many more events much further into the future that could have been revealed to Daniel, Gabriel stops the vision at this point and had Daniel seal it because the events pertain to what we call the end times. These events sealed by Daniel are some of those written on this scroll revealed in Revelation chapter 5. Okay? Now, Think about knowing all of that and think about the impact that would have on persecuted Christians as they suffer through the chaos and cruelty and persecution both within the Roman Empire but every other subsequent persecution of the church and church history. When you're fleeing to escape being beaten or imprisoned or having your possessions taken away from you or being separated from your spouse and your kids, it surely feels like the world is spinning completely out of control. You can't imagine what the next hardship will be, the next loved one who's going to be martyred, the next friend who's going to betray you to save his own scalp. Your experience, what you are feeling, is utter bedlam. And the temptation, of course, which we would all feel, is to feel hopeless and full of despair. But chapter 5 here speaks to those persecuted Christians to remember that the cruelty that they experience is not being made up on the spot, even though it feels like it. No, what they're experiencing is in fact been carefully and precisely scripted by the sovereign God who loves them. That's what this scroll is communicating to its original and subsequent readers. These things on the scroll, that means they've been measured, they've been filtered, they've been limited, they've been specifically contoured by God himself to do in them what is best for them eternally. Okay? Psalm 139, verse 16, has been a comfort to so many believers. David writes, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is teaching that each one of us has our own individual scrolls, if you will, with God's plan for every day written on. That's what the psalmist is saying here. The scrolls in Revelation 5, or the scroll in Revelation 5, is like a compilation of all of our individual scrolls that also includes all the other world and local events that's going to play out on the earth, specifically those that are listed in the Revelation. They may be acts of God's judgment on those who stand against him, or acts of grace, redemptive work that God is doing on behalf of his people. 
But a potentially devastating problem emerges in chapter 5, a huge problem. And in verse 4, John reveals that it is so troubling to him that he breaks out literally in what is a loud wail. He's deeply, deeply depressed by the fact that no one is able to open the scroll. That problem is introduced when this strong angel calls out over all of the created order, asking who is able to break the seals and open the scroll, and nobody responds for quite some time, okay? Now, we have to remember that this is apocalyptic imagery, and it's not supposed to be taken literally. This is not about God recruiting someone to come up and take a literal scroll from his literal hand, okay? Remember what the scroll represents. It represents God's predetermined plans for history that must and most definitely will be fulfilled on earth during these end times. And so to open the scroll is God's symbolic way of expressing that God is seeking someone who is qualified to oversee someone who's qualified to rule over all the events of the end times. Someone must oversee what happens and when it happens in these times to make sure these things correspond with what is written on God's preordained scroll, okay? Who will bring into being these final chapters of salvation history? Who will oversee this process of translating God's written decrees to our material reality? That's the point. The reason there's a delay in filling this role is to emphasize that the qualifications required to take on this responsibility are unimaginably, infinitely steep. And you can imagine why John is so troubled, because he was told in chapter 4, come on up and I will show you what is about to take place. He's looking forward to seeing it, and now he sees all the redemptive acts, all the acts of judgment that the people of the world that are evil they're not going to happen. And so he's devastated by this. But we see here the responsibility that this one must have if they're going to be qualified, okay? That's what he's talking about. Now, we need to understand about these qualifications, and in order to do that, we need to think about the fact that the end-time events recorded on this scroll largely fall into one of two categories. Much of it, if you've read the Revelation, is the judgment or God's wrath poured out on the wicked who are at war with him, both the human wicked and the demonic or satanic wicked. God has been warning millennia in this world for the wicked to repent, to come to him in faith, and the lost world has refused. So it's judgment time. The time is up. The bell has tolled. In the Revelation, we read of earthquakes and natural disasters and pestilence and all of these other calamities that are dispensed on the earth as God's judgment on the wicked. And that includes both human evil and the demonic evil that underlies it. The punishment for all those who oppose God is now at hand, and it's written on the scroll. In order for a person to legally pronounce or carry out those kind of judgments on the guilty, that person must first have needed to conquer these enemies. Remember that these evil forces were at war with God, and you cannot convene the Nuremberg trials for war crimes perpetrated by Nazi Germany unless and until you have defeated Nazi Germany. You get it? 
You can't stand in judgment and render a sentence on someone unless you have first prevailed over them in some way and been given authority over them as judge. So the only one qualified to dispense this judgment on the wicked, the judge is the one who defeated these enemies of God. In addition to the judgments of God, the other piece of what's on this scroll is the gracious works of redemption and the rewards for the saints. See, those who have placed their trust savingly in Jesus Christ. And this would include the heavenly vindication, the heavenly exaltation, and the heavenly glorification of those who by grace trust in Christ. And the only person qualified to bring these redemptive events into being is the one who saved these former enemies of God out of their sin, chosen them, called them, cleansed them, and qualified them to live with God forever in glory. Okay? Only that person, the redeemer of these former rebels, will be able to perform these redemptive acts written on the scroll because he's the one who said they're now qualified for these things. Well, those necessary qualifications narrows the list of eligible candidates for this role of opening the scroll and breaking the seals down to one. So now let's spend some time looking as we see the judge and the Redeemer, as he's revealed. This is what verse 5 is about. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This series of seven seals, or we could call them chapters, or series of judgments and redemptive acts written on the scroll, can be ruled over by only the judge and Redeemer who has conquered. He's conquered over the enemies of God, human and demonic, and he has conquered over the sin of the saints who now follow him and worship him. The two titles that are used here for Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, are found in these only exact words, only here in the Bible, but any good Jew would have identified these as ways of referring to their promised Messiah. The Lion of Judah is a messianic title. It speaks of the Messiah. And it goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he says of Judah his son, who's going to have a tribe named after him, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The Jews knew their Messiah was going to come through this tribe of Judah. And over time, they came to identify this Messiah as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who they knew would, with the fierceness of a lion, overcome and conquer their enemies. The root of David was another title that to the Jew would have screamed, Messiah. The Jews knew their messianic king would come from the family line of King David. Okay? But David's line of kings ended when Judah was exiled in Babylon. The royal tree, if you will, was cut down. But in chapter 11 of Isaiah, the prophet reveals that out of the stump of that royal tree will grow one more ultimate Messiah king. 
He prophesies in verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Later in verse 10, very similarly, he says, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So John's symbolic language in chapter 5 here simply says that Jesus because he is the messianic king who conquered sin and death for his believers and who defeated Satan and his minions, he alone is able to bring judgment upon those he has conquered. Because Jesus alone was qualified to rule over all of this in verse 7, it says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's his way of saying, I'm ruling over this. I got this. I'm qualified. Verse 6 continues, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven horns, seven eyes. Seven horns, the horn in the Bible is always indicating strength. Seven is the perfect number. So this, this particular lamb is a bit of a curious lamb because he has perfect strength. He has seven spirits of God, which we've already seen. That's the Holy Spirit. So he has the Holy Spirit with him. This reveals the central message of the Bible, which of course is the gospel. John was told, if you recall, to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then he looks over and he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but a lamb as though it had been slain. So this lamb bore the marks of a sacrificial death, which meant its throat had been cut, and its blood had, blood had been let through it. But because this is symbolic imagery, we mustn't be too literal because this sacrificial lamb is very much alive. Okay? This is where apocalyptic imagery, you can't take it literally. This is a slain lamb who happens to be alive. Okay? That's the point. The point of the imagery is to say that as the lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus conquered his enemies. But as the lamb, it tells you how he conquered his enemies. Okay. Now, you may be surprised to know that John is the only author in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as the Lamb. He does it a few times in his gospel, but in the Revelation, the Lamb is the main representation for Jesus. Okay? In Revelation chapters 4 through 22, John uses the designation for Jesus, Lamb, 27 times. It is the main way that Jesus is referred to in the book of the Revelation. Now, when you see a pattern like that, nobody else talks about Jesus as the Lamb except John, and in the Revelation, he goes nuts about it. You need to ask the question, okay, there's a reason for that. That's not a coincidence. So why? Why would this be here with such profound repetition in the book of Revelation? And there are surely many reasons. He, his repeated use of this term is mostly to emphasize, to remind us again and again and again as we read this book, that Jesus conquered the sins of his own people as well as his enemy at the cross. Jesus conquered his enemies 
by dying a sacrificial death. That's what it means to call Jesus the Lamb. Paul says in Colossians 2 that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the satanic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he triumphed on the cross. At the cross, Jesus stripped Satan of the one lethal weapon he possessed, and that is the unforgiven sins of God's people. Okay? He has nothing with which to condemn believers now because our sins have been forgiven by Jesus. Jesus stripped that weapon from him by dying on a cross and forgiving our sins. But think about another reason why Jesus' main designation in the book of the Revelation is the Lamb. This book, as we've already established, was primarily written to encourage, to strengthen, to fortify believers who either were being persecuted or were soon to be persecuted. That's the main purpose for which John writes this book. Well, if Jesus conquered through what he suffered, and that is the pattern he established for his followers, do you hear how that's going to speak to people who are being persecuted? Jesus is the Lamb of God tells his people who are suffering for their faith that they are not, nor should they look at themselves fundamentally as victims of their cruel oppressors. Fundamentally, they are following in the footsteps of their master. That's what's going on in their persecution. They are sharing in his suffering. They're identifying with him in a very profound and precious way. They're sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says, showing their comprehensive and sacrificial love for him. You're following in the footsteps of the Lamb. And just as it was with Jesus The message of the book of Revelation is your victory will come. Your conquest over the enemy comes as you endure the suffering and remain faithful as he did. That's how you conquer, right? In verse 8, as we did in chapter 4, we again see these two elements of God's ruling council, the 24 elders and these four creatures that are worshiping. And John records in verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are portrayed here and other places in the Bible as incense. The psalmist also speaks of the prayers of God's people as incense that ascend the throne of God and offer a pleasing aroma. The word for bowls here, it speaks of shallow little bowls that you could hold in the palm of your hand that would hold incense, okay? These aren't big glass orbs or anything, all that. These were not necessarily impressive, but they were golden. John portrays them as golden to show how precious to God are the prayers of his saints. Do you see your prayers to God as sweet-smelling incense to him that he regards as precious and valuable? That's biblical. You should never see it as just a conversation between you and God. They're far more important to him than that. That ought to encourage us in our prayer lives, which can feel so mundane, right? God says, they're not mundane. 
They're in golden bowls. They're presented to me by the highest living authorities in the cosmos, these 24 elders and these four creatures. That ought to tell us something about how important they are to God when he takes these most important, most authoritative beings, beings on their own thrones in the, in the, in the context of the throne of God, and he says, you present the prayers of the saints to me. This tells us something really important about prayers. Finally, let's turn to the crescendo of worship offered to Jesus by these heavenly beings. It's a growing crescendo because there are these three separate brief scenes of heavenly worship, and as you go on, each one is more bigger and more, bigger and more impressive in its scope. In the first worship scene in verses 9 and 10, it's just these ruling members of the council, the 24 elders and these four creatures. Next in verses 10 and 11, those those are joined by the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And those words which are used elsewhere in places like Daniel simply mean that there are more worshiping angels there than you could possibly number. These are without number. Finally, in verse 13, those two groups are joined in the third sequence of worship to include every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. That's everybody. That's everybody, every living creature, every person. That's the scene that Paul depicts in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means that all the creatures will be worshiping God, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And because this is all creatures, it includes those billions upon billions and unredeemed sinners and fallen angels who are warring against God but who have no choice. They are not capable of doing anything but crying out in worship to Christ. The radiant glory of Christ is so overpowering that those who now hate and despise Jesus, human or demonic, will one day bow before him in praise and honor and worship because they can do nothing else. The first scene of worship, though it's the least impressive in number, is actually the most detailed in the content of the worship. In fact, the other two scenes are really just echoes, partial echoes of this first one. So that's where we're going to focus for the rest of our time. Verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We know this is a worship scene because it says they're singing a new song to him because no one's ever seen anybody do the kind of things that Jesus did before, and because it begins with the word worthy, and worthy is the word from which we get worship, worthship is what it means. What qualifies Jesus to open the scroll is also the reason these heavenly creatures are worshiping him. There's only one reason why Jesus is qualified to take the scroll, but there are three parts to this reason. What he did, he was slain. 
The interpretation of what he did is he ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And finally, the result of what he did is he made a kingdom and priest to our God that shall reign on the earth. There's so much theology in these three parts of what Jesus did, and we have little time left. The fact that the lamb was slain is most important. This element alone is mentioned both in this section, and it's either mentioned or implied in the next two scenes of worship. The slain lamb, the image of the slain lamb, of course, goes back to the book of Exodus, doesn't it? When the children of Israel were forced to slay the Passover lambs and place their blood over and around their outside entrance. In this way, the blood of the lamb would cause the angel of death to pass over them and spare their firstborn from the judgment of God. It's important for us to remember that both the Egyptians and the Jews deserved the death sentence from a holy God. But because the Jews were covered by the blood of the Lamb, they were rescued from the punishment that they deserved. It is no mere coincidence that on the day that Jesus was slain on the cross, in that period of time, the Passover lambs for that Passover were also slain. That's not a coincidence that it just happened to work out that way. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb to which all the other slain Passover lambs point. He was slain, it says, to ransom people for God from every possible people group in the world. The word ransom there means to redeem a person. And the word literally means, it refers to slaves being purchased out of the slave market. This was a commercial term that the New Testament authors co-opted because it fits so well what God has done with redeemed sinners. He's purchased them out of the slave market, and in this case, the price of redemption for those slaves was the blood of the lamb. People are born enslaved to sin, to Satan, and to death. They are held hostage. They are held under the oppressive thumb of all three of those enslavers. And they're so blind to it, they don't even realize it's happening to them except by the grace of God. The angelic beings reveal that God doesn't just liberate them from slavery for the sake of their freedom. No, he liberates them so that from them he could create a kingdom and priests for God. This is so exalted. We have been purchased which means we are now owned by God, right? He bought us so that he could own us, not so that we could own ourselves. And God's purpose for us as our owner is to serve him as our king and represent him to other people as his priests. We're a kingdom of priests. Finally, these creatures say of God's ransomed people, they shall reign on the earth. We have to remember that the Bible is one message from Genesis to Revelation, and he's tying things up here. And the original purpose of creation for Adam and Eve was what? So that they would rule and reign over the earth. Now that we have been redeemed, we can serve that original creation purpose, okay? There is so much to this heavenly throne room that we haven't even talked about, but let's do a little bit of application. Hopefully there's a lot of many points of application that will be a blessing to us. We must always see ourselves as those who exist to serve our king and to represent him to others as his priests. And he can do that because he owns us. He's purchased us with the blood of his son. 
Is that the way we see ourselves? Is that the way we understand what it is to be a Christian, to be a person who is purchased, to relate to God as our king and to relate to others as his priests? That's God's understanding, okay? I trust that we're also impacted by these other truths like the value and preciousness of our prayers to God. We should experience great comfort at the truth that in spite of how crazy and sometimes painful our lives can be, God is in complete control over even the evil things that can happen to us, okay? All of that is clearly intended. But the main thrust of this passage is the amazing Savior that we see and His act of redemption accomplished for us by the Lamb of God that is worthy of this worship of such an unimaginable scope. You have to catch this. Think about what is presented here. When the most powerful, influential, created beings in the cosmos, these 24 elders and the four creatures, that's the way they're presented, on thrones in the throne room of God. I don't have a throne in the throne room of God. Neither do you. They do. Okay? So when those most influential, those most authoritative, those most powerful beings of God's ruling council, when billions upon billions and trillions upon trillions of angelic beings who are so glorious that if we met even one of them, they would scare us half to death, when those kinds of beings and those numbers of supernatural beings are falling on their faces in intense expressions of praise to God for something he did, You get the idea that what Jesus did in coming to earth and dying for us on the cross, you just get the idea in light of all that fuss that's being made that maybe that's just a big deal. These beings, many of whom did not personally experience the salvation themselves because they're without sin, these are completely, absolutely blown away by what God has done for us in Christ. The point is, if we do not live with an ongoing and profound awareness and appreciation for what Jesus did for us on that hill on Calvary, we're horribly out of step with the rest of the created order on a cosmic scale. We must see this And we're the ones who Jesus did this for. We're the recipients of this. So it should mean all the more to us. If you're not moved profoundly in response to what Jesus did for you, then you need to spend as much time as you need and find out what on earth is wrong with you. Because something is desperately wrong with you. We need to repent of our gross ingratitude and ask that God would fill us with the same level of awe and worship for Jesus and what he did for us as all of these other created beings. May God give us the grace to live in praise and worship for what has been done for us by Jesus, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, this is an overwhelming scene not just because it's written apocalyptically, God. We we try to imagine what this would be like. We don't have any clue. We're so limited because this is a scene infinite in scope, and our minds are finite. We don't know what a myriad is. 
And all of this fuss is being made because of Jesus and what he did. And Father, we sit and spend so much of our lives, at least I do, spending so much of our lives just taking it for granted. Of course, Jesus saved me. That's kind of his job, isn't it? Oh God, forgive us for our ingratitude. Open our eyes, God. Do a work of supernatural revelation in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, so that we, by your grace, would begin to get what you've done for us. Father, if you don't do this, it won't happen. We, this is not something that we can figure out on our own. We need you to give us a vision like you gave John in our hearts. Enable us to appreciate what it is you've done for us in Jesus so that we might live in praise and worship as people who are part of your kingdom and as people who are charged with the responsibility as your priests to tell other people about this incredible, miraculous, eternal event that happened 2,000 years ago. Oh God, we pray for your help and we ask all of these things in the name of the one who died for us. Amen.